Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 222. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 222 you're listening to. My guest today is Justin Lieberman. Justin is a producer and engineer with over two decades of experience here in the Bay Area, and his current gig is at Sony Interactive. Prior to that, however, he's been working with hundreds and hundreds of artists on over 150 commercially released albums by people like Santana, George Winston, David Gray, Bill Frizzell, Les Claypool, Lannis Morissette. Uh, he's also worked on a variety of video game titles, uh, as well as many films and commercials and voiceovers. Uh, the guy has been all over the place in terms of diversification of audio. Uh, we talk about his early experiences at Prairie Sun Recording to his current gig at Sony Interactive. We also talk about commuting, work-life balance, Al Gore, mixing hundreds of tracks and surround sound and more. So Justin Lieberman coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, let's talk about staying motivated. So I'm sure many of you go through this from time to time where you get up in the morning and you've got a list of things you got to get done for clients, mixed touch-up, mastering, uh, some form of revision, uh, send a file to a client, whatever it is. And, you know, there's just days I just don't want to come in and sit in front of the computer and do this. There's days where I just want to lay down on the couch and watch Netflix all day. Those days are few and far between, but it does occur. And so how do you get past that? How do you get past the slump that you're in? And, you know, it, it's not only the, the possibility of just feeling lazy, but, you know, there could be something upsetting you in your life. It could be a breakup, a, a divorce, uh, uh, maybe you're moving and maybe you've lost a gig. There could be some external factor that is affecting you, affecting your mental state, and you just don't want to work. So where to find the motivation? Well... I always find, you know, the walking thing, I've talked about that in past episodes, taking a walk, a long walk, a hike, a couple miles maybe, clears your head, really starts to help you work through those demons and refreshes you. And they say that walking, if, if you are one who tends to get depressed, walking is actually quite good for you. Walking and running. I hate running. Not unless I'm being chased. But... Uh, Quite honestly, sometimes uh, just sitting down and reading an article about another engineer or listening to a podcast about another engineer really motivates me. Now, I, I honestly do not listen back to my own show because I listen to it once as I'm putting it together for you. But, you know, listening to other podcasts or, or watching uh, documentaries or watching uh, YouTube interviews with people, sometimes that can get me get me going. So it can be a combination of things, you know, a little bit of exercise, a little bit of uh, just uh, looking at what other people do, investigating what they do, reading a book, you know, that has nothing to do with audio. That's a possibility. There are a number of things that you can do. And sometimes, quite honestly, 
you know, as I work during the week, you know, there are cans of sparkling water, coffee cups and plates that pile up that, you know, it starts to look like a bachelor pad and it's kind of gross. So since I don't have many clients that come over, that that tends to be the case. Man, I tell you, the minute a client comes over, I am, it's like sparkling, super sparkling. So clean it up for yourself too. It's, it's not only for them, it's for you too. So go, get into your studio, clean it up, vacuum, make it look presentable as if a client's coming over and maybe that can also help motivate you. But And hey, if all else fails, remember, it's okay to take a day off and go recharge and go do something completely different. So hang in there and stay motivated. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That does it. Let's get to it. Justin Lieberman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Justin. Thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan, so I'm excited to be here. 
I first met you, I think, at Different Fur. I was hanging out with my buddy, Jerry Stucker. He was there for a session, and I think you were there as one of the house engineers. This is the generation of Different Fur when Susan Skaggs and Howard Johnston were running it. I tell you, my initial impression, because it, it still resonates with me to this day, I just got this vibe from you and watching you and just observing you in that environment. I was like, this guy knows exactly what he's doing. He's such a badass. And I was really actually floored by your professionalism at the time. And I think I thought at that moment, wow, okay, that's kind of where, where it needs to be at for engineers is this kind of professionalism. So that was my first exposure to you. Wow, thanks for that. Where did you grow up? I grew up in San Francisco Bay Area. I was born in San Francisco, one of the few natives, and grew up in Marin and Sonoma County. You know, played in bands in high school and kind of got my start, the start of the addiction pretty young. Beyond four-track type experiments and stuff like that, what was the first time that audio became a possibility as a profession? Like, where did it become serious? My first band I was in, we did a couple days up at Prairie Sun. I was probably maybe 16 or something. And it was so awesome. It was like the best three days of my life. It was just, you know, such a great experience and playing music with my friends. And it felt like, you know, you're kind of on an island or something. We completely forgot about homework or whatever we had to do for the next week. And I think that experience just totally changed me. And ever since then, I've been addicted. (laughs) Who ran that session, that initial session? You know, I don't recall. It was like whatever house guy we saved up, I don't know, a thousand bucks or something and went in there and it was whatever house guy, but he was great. And I remember Muka coming down to visit us and say hello. But yeah, I don't remember the engineer. And for the audience, Muka is the owner of Prairie Sun. That session really had an impact on you. And so did after that session, did you think, well, I want to do this? I definitely thought that, but I didn't think, you know, there was any possibility of, you know, how how do you go about learning how to do all that? You know, there's so many knobs and so much gear. I mean, I had my little Fostex 4-track and that was getting my amp going and, and that thing was the extent of my capabilities at that point. And then about maybe a year and a half after that, a producer from LA heard some tracks that we'd done and took us over to Fantasy and we got to do a week at Fantasy and then that just totally sealed the deal. <laughs> It was early, mid-90s, I think, and I think Green Day had just finished a record there, and we were all huge fans of Green Day, and so hanging out on the same turf was just awesome. Prairie Sun, that first exposure, and then Fantasy, two great Bay Area institutions. Unfortunately, Fantasy is in limbo as we speak, as we record this, but do you remember who ran the session at Fantasy? The producers, it was Greg Wells and Rick Knowles were the producers, and they brought somebody up from L.A. to engineer the sessions. But we had this awesome assistant. His name was Vinny, and I can't remember his last name, but he was like this crazy assistant that was you know, running around, and he had a motorcycle, and he was doing wheelies up and down the street, and the whole band was like, oh, man, that guy's got a cool gig. <laughs> <laughs> That's Greg Wells, as in the Greg Wells that we all are well aware of. Yeah, he worked with this guy Rick Knowles a whole bunch back then, and and they took us in there for a few days. At the time, I think Greg was playing drums for Katie Lang, I think, and we wrote some decent songs, but none of us could play our instruments that well, so Greg was brought in to kind of show us how to play them. (laughs) You know, (laughs) try this chord here, that kind of stuff. Did you act on that experience and then jump into some kind of situation to 
get yourself up to speed with recording? Yeah. So it was shortly after that. That was all in my high school years. And then right after high school, I went to San Francisco State, started as a music major, thought I was starting as a music major. And I took a recording class the first semester and that was it. I was totally hooked. Tried to sign up for every single recording class and didn't care about taking any other classes and then started out on some internships. You know, at the time, internship was like, you know, you sit at the front desk from 6 p.m. till 3 a.m. or something and make coffee. But I got a great one at Toast. Yeah. Which, uh, I think you're familiar with the building. Very well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was like the night phone guy at Toast for six months or so. And that was kind of the beginning of, you know, wow, I, if I can get a few dollars an hour... <laughs> this could actually be a thing for me. So that was the beginning of converting into actually doing it for a living. And just historically speaking, that era of Toast, which was located at 1340 Mission between 9th and 10th in San Francisco, that was the era that Philip Steer and Craig Sylvie ran the studio or had the studio. I think Jakir King had spent some time there. Yep. And those were the 90s. Those were um, the days of No Doubt and REM coming through there. Yep. Did anybody in particular have an impact on you there? I remember Joe Ciccarelli was doing a record. It might have been this band called Black Lab, I think was the name of the band. But Joe was in the back room, and there was an assistant named Anne Marie who was assisting him, and she kept coming out and telling me what he's up to. And she was an assistant there, and Ciccarelli's in the back room mixing this record. And it was a really, really cool vibe. That place was really busy during that era, and I was only there about six months, but just seeing... All the people that I really, really, really admired coming in and out, it felt like, you know, we're real close to being able to do this. Were you growing anxious sitting around at the front desk? Yeah, it was brutal. It was the most exciting time and the most boring time possible because you're so excited just to be there. But my duty really was just make sure the coffee pot doesn't go empty and answer the phone. (laughs) Like I said, it was fun and it was really boring, but I figured if I hang out long enough, maybe I'll get to go in there and clean up after them or do something. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Were you ever tempted to walk away from it? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. It seemed like, you know, after about six months of literally every night just going in and sitting there at the front desk, you know, it seemed like, well, this isn't really going anywhere. So I kind of started reaching out to some other studios and I was always a big fan of tons of records that were done at different fur And so I kept calling Howard and Susan and bring my resume by. And and finally, you know, after about maybe six or nine months of doing that, I believe one of the assistants had moved out of the area or something. And they said, hey, why don't you come down? And the owner, Howard, needed somebody to work with him during the evenings. So that was the beginning of my tenure at Different Fur. Now, tell me about working under Howard. It was great. Howard's like, to this day, he's one of my best friends and serious mentors. He was pretty hardcore. He had some real, if you're in the control room, you better know how to operate everything. And he was pretty tough back then, but he ran a really tight ship and he wanted everybody to be completely competent if you were there. But he was always awesome about spending as much time as we needed to learn how to line the tape machine right or recall a setup or whatever we were doing. You know, most of the work I was doing there was... Well, all of the work I was doing there for the first five years was just assisting him, really. I've, I've heard that Howard's a little bit like combination of Obi-Wan Kenobi mixed with <laughs> uh, a, a little bit of, uh, I don't know, name, name a harsher character. But tell me your perspective of that. Oh, yeah, totally. He was There was one goal, and it's like, make the session run smooth and make the client have a good experience. That was it. You know, you were expected to be there. When the client walked in, everything had to be set up ready, and they weren't supposed to see the behind-the-scenes stuff, and he made sure that happened. 
there was a great crew of people around at that time. Like you mentioned, Jerry Stucker was in and out. Adam Munoz was an engineer there at the time. Another guy named John Mayer. Not not the, the guitar musician, player. Not the guitar player. You know, it was just a really cool scene. There was people upstairs, management companies. It was a really, really cool scene. Yeah, that's right. That place had a, an upstairs area. I remember, I think David Lefkowitz management, who managed Primus, was upstairs there for a while. Yeah, they had Primus, Galactic, Queens of the Stone Age were managed by somebody on the second floor. It was a hustling building. Yeah, that, it, was a, it was an interesting place. What were the hard lessons you learned from Howard? You know, I think the amount of time you have to be in the studio to figure stuff out. You know, he was the work weeks. I don't even know what kind of hours we were putting in, but it was like, if you were awake, you're at the studio. And that was a hard lesson, you know, doing all my friends are out going out to a party or something. And well, you got to be here. But I think looking back, I think that was great. I left San Francisco State pretty early and, you know, maybe had six or seven audio recording classes. So I really learned everything to get me going at different fur working there with Howard. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting position to be in because as a younger, younger person, if it was any other job, I think that there would be a, a mild temptation to just say, piss off and quit. But with that kind of a situation, it's like, well, you want to be there. So it's a, I'm sure it's a tug of war in the mind because you want to be out socially with your friends. But at the same time, you have this responsibility, this obligation that's important to you. Absolutely. Well, how long did that last over there at Different Fur? How long did you stick around? I think I was there about seven years. and uh, That's a good run. Yeah, good run. It was up until about the time until they sold the building. And I don't know who they sold to, but it's not the current owner. Uh, somebody in between there. And, you know, they sold the building and we moved out. And at that time... There was another person just opening up a studio down at 6th and Atoma called SF Soundworks. And, you know, I was kind of lucky that I kind of got involved in that right at the time that Different Fur was changing hands. So I kind of walked out the door of Different Fur and into working at Soundworks. Right. That was uh, Tony Espinoza? Yes. Right. And uh, that building currently houses Women's Audio Mission. Yep, it sure does. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. Now, take me to the point of where you and former WCA guest Willie Samuels got involved at Studio Trilogy. So I spent a few years at SF Soundworks, and one of my clients there was this guy named PC Munoz, who was a producer and musician and poet and just all-around great guy. And we'd been doing quite a few projects out of SF Soundworks. And one day at lunch, he's like, hey man, me and some of my friends were starting this record label and we need we need some engineers. Are you interested? And you know, I kind of figured, oh, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll come down and check it out. And he took me down to the facility or something and I saw what was going on there. And it was like this you know, amazing build out of this huge building. And uh, so I jumped on that and ended up getting hired by that record label as they were starting up. That was a talking house? Talking House Records, right. yep. And I think maybe a year 
or a year and a half after the place was built, we were kind of so busy that we needed to find some more engineers and Willie came along and then he and I worked for Talking House together there for, I think about four years, three years maybe. And then as Talking House closed, Willie Samuels, myself, and Cindy McSherry put together a little proposal to the landlord or the person who owned the whole facility to take it over and run it as a open to the public commercial studio. And we were just totally hit the lottery. And the guy said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And so in 2010, it was like April 2010, uh, Willie, Cindy, and I started Studio Trilogy together. You ran a great, great operation there. It was a, not only was it a beautiful place, but I, I think I was only over there once for a session, but the session I did do, I was just like, oh man, this place is, it was just incredible. Now to jump ahead, that came to an end because of what reasons? We were cranking business-wise. I mean, we were financially, that, that was the most revenue generating studio I've, I'd ever worked at. We were super, super busy, but the real estate market started climbing and, you know, eventually the owner decided that he, he'd like to get out and sell the real estate. And, you know, although we were doing really well as a studio, we just couldn't afford to buy the building in south of market real estate prices are a little silly. So, so at that point we closed shop and we intended to kind of open up, find another place in the city, but we ran into the real estate market issue everywhere we went. So that was the end of Studio Trilogy. Why do you think you guys were so financially successful? What are some of the factors you think were part of that? We had some great help, some kind of business people that made us think outside the box. And they said, look, you guys are running a studio that's not the highest margin business to run here. So we need to really diversify the services you guys are offering. So we kind of took a look at the business model and said, okay, our passion, our love is making albums with you know, musicians and people we know. And so that's really our core love of this profession, but we have to extend the services. So we started doing post-production for radio and television advertising. We did a little bit of film scoring, game scoring. We'd even occasionally we'd rent the facility out for events even, you know, however we could kind of subsidize the work that we really wanted to be doing there. We took advantage of it. Voiceovers and such. Yeah, absolutely. And towards the end, it was funny. We were doing a ton of podcasts. There was a lot of uh, <laughs> being close to Silicon Valley. We had a ton of podcasts coming in. I think it was Willie was telling me a story about Al Gore showing up and uh, <laughs> no secret service, but just like him at the door. Yeah. We, we Willie was funny because Willie was going to be working with him and we were like Googling, like, what do you call the former vice president? You know, like, is there an official salutation or something? Uh, <laughs> and he just showed up, knocked on the door, and hey, it's Al. <laughs> it was kind of funny, too, because a few, it might have been a few months prior to that, we had Justin Bieber in for some video shoot or something. And they had, you know, Secret Service looking guys with like wireless things in their ear and suits. And they're they're on the corners, like, you know, around the building. They have like a full security team. They have escorts, cars driving him in and out. And it was just kind of funny that Justin Bieber gets that kind of treatment and the former vice president literally like rolls out of a cab and knocks on the door. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. You guys had quite a, a lot of interesting people coming in and out, out of there. What were the challenges of that studio for you all? I think we ran pretty small. It was primarily the three of us that kind of handled everything especially in the beginning, from engineering sessions to marketing to building our website to all that kind of stuff. So I think managing our time, it kind of just swallowed us whole. <laughs> 
that was definitely one of the big challenges. And then, you know, the age old worrying when it gets a little slow and then trying to take on every bit of business that comes at you when it's available. So managing those peaks and valleys of workflow. Yeah, that was a pretty lean, mean crew there. Now, and, and I guess each person had their talents. When it came to making decisions about everything, was it just like constant meetings or weekly meetings with the three of you? <laughs> we tried that for a bit, and then you know one of us wouldn't be available one week, and somebody wouldn't be available the next week. So we kind of you know just try and have lunch together and catch up. And after the first year, I think we kind of settled into our roles as you know what our strengths were individually, and we all kind of just took on our corner of what we could, you know, the tasks that had to be done. You know, we were a good team. We all kind of came from different backgrounds, had different strengths, and made up. You know, Cindy was great with booking and keeping the books and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Willie and I did most of the engineering, although we probably had maybe 40% of the work was independent engineers who would come in and just book the studio. Would Do you think you would have thought of the different ways of diversifying had you not had a little bit of influence from, I, I guess that was, if I recall correctly, the it was the owner whose business people were interested in seeing you guys succeed, if they hadn't intervened, do you think it would have done as well as it had? Probably not. I think, especially Willie and I, were like, you know, we're engineers, we're comfortable sitting in the control room and running a session. And that's what we were good at. And that's what we did sort of. And I think the business help that we got kind of said, hey, you guys need to do that, do that as good as you can, but also come out of the control room and think about how to make this thing sustainable. So they definitely pushed us to think, stay in the industry, stay doing things associated with what you know how to do, but how can you broaden that net just a little bit? I bet that was a big learning experience. Oh, it was huge. I mean, I think my whole career, every every day has been a learning experience. I think that's you know one of the awesome things about being in audio. It's you never quite figure it out. You just keep on learning. That was definitely a huge learning period for, for all three of us. But you know, I speak for myself, definitely. It was examining different areas that I was interested in because I'd always done like music for albums. You know, that's kind of what I came up doing and thinking of, hey, do you want to try and do music for a film or something? And I you know, really, really, really enjoyed that. It was great being pushed to think outside, you know, my comfort zone and try new things. And also possibly, you know, marrying those two worlds of really starting to think about business for business sake and marrying that with the artistic satisfaction one gets from doing audio. Absolutely. So that all, of course, ended essentially, if I recall correctly, the owner wanted to consolidate his assets, so to speak. And so therefore, that's when the sale of the building happened and you guys essentially, you know, decided to kind of close shop because you just couldn't afford the building, as you had said earlier. So what was the plan for you? Were you just like, well, should we do another studio or what was on your mind then? And were you panicking? Yes. All of that. <laughs> we were totally panicking. You know, it was, it was a tough time because we had worked really, really hard to build that business up. And we felt six months, three months before we were notified that he was going to sell it. We thought, man, we're really doing this. This is great. So to, to have it shut down was tough. But initially we all kind of thought, okay, let's just set up shop somewhere else. And then we realized like how much of a I mean, we always realized it and we're appreciative of the facility that we had, but really getting outside of it for a second was like, wow, that facility was was really amazing and enabled us to do all of the things that we had done there. I think at that point, we kind of, you know, maybe 
six months after we closed, we were doing some freelance sessions and taking care of some clients that had residual projects that were continuing on past the closure of the building. And then probably six months, we all kind of said, you know, we should all figure out separate paths here. And I was really fortunate. Some of the people that we had done some game scoring with for Sony PlayStation had an engineering position available and asked me to come down and you know check it out. I did that and I'm still here. So that's located in, is that in Redwood City? It's in Foster City. Foster City. Okay. Yeah. And don't you live in Marin? I do. Yeah. That's so a little that's, bit of a haul. It is a haul. Across the Golden Gate Bridge every day. Yep. Wow. Yeah. How does that current gig with with Sony play into work-life balance? Because I know you have a family. Yes, I do. I have two great kids and an awesome wife. And it's definitely healthier for, uh, for me than you know, running the studio. It's still, if projects are ramping up and I get busy, it's, you know, can still be unpredictable hours, but it's much more regulated. And the production cycle of the projects that I'm working on is much longer. So it's a little less cramming. Whereas, you know, making a record, it seems like every, every record you make the last three or four days going into finishing the record is a cram. It's much more planned out here. Do you miss aspects of working with bands and all that came before your Sony gig? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I still do, you know, a tiny bit of independent stuff, but yeah, I think I definitely miss some of it. The majority of the work that I'm doing now is like, is mixing. So it's a little bit more, a little bit more solitary, although there's an awesome team here of people that I, you know, work with, but most of the recording that we do happens at great studios that aren't here. We do a lot of work you know, out of Oceanway, Nashville, or they do a lot of work in London with Air and Abbey Road. So they'll get these great recordings and then they come back to Foster City to be mixed. Interesting. So what is the average size of a session from one of those sessions? Oh, it's silly. I just mixed something last week that got, there's a lot of busing. We do every, everything's mixed in surround and, and stereo at the same time. And then we also create pretty granular stem set of everything that we mix that can be edited in different ways. But the cue I mixed last week was like, I was topping 430 tracks. Oh my God. Yeah. It's pretty big. I mean, cause they'll, they'll run the orchestra and do four or five stripes of the orchestra, maybe four or five stripes of strings, four or five stripes of brass. Oh. Sometimes there's two or three stripes of choir. So it can, the track count can add up real quick. Stripes meaning they're double tracking. Double tracking. There are parts. They'll split out the low, low, short parts of a string pass, the high, long parts of a string pass, that kind of stuff. Just the session management alone of that is mind-boggling. Yeah. Yep. So when you pull a session like that up, I assume that at least at Unity, the levels are pretty dialed in for the most part, right? Oh, yeah. All the, all the orchestral stuff. I mean, those... You know, Ocean Way and Aaron Abbey wrote there. The recordings that come off the stage there are just amazing. It's like you sit back and listen to literally just the tree or the room mics. You know, you kind of scratch your head thinking, what what can I do to this to make it sound better? So they, you know, it's great recordings to start with. Wow. Well, so now is this a contract gig? It was for the first two years. And then just back in October, I got brought on as an employee. And so when that happens, obviously, you get to partake in benefits, salary, but then at the same time, you're also dealing with vacation days and vacation requests, et cetera. Yes. Which takes a, you know, a little bit of getting used to because it's been 20 years of, oh, business is slow. I'm taking a vacation. <laughs> but it's been a great gig and I've super liked the, uh, super enjoyed the change of pace. Is there any opportunity for you to work from home 
with that gig. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of the stuff I'm mixing is surround, but after Trilogy closed, both Willie and I set up pretty good mix rooms at home. So I have everything I need at home to mix most stuff, except I don't have the surround speaker set up. If you did, would that allow you to do that? Possibly. There's definitely a really cool interactive thing that happens here where there's, you know, there's a team of, I don't know, maybe 13 or 14 people on the music side. And I didn't do much surround mixing before being down here. So it was just a ton of learning how to do it and what feels right and what doesn't. But the having the team of people here that can kind of come in and listen to a mix and point out things that aren't working or things that are working is, is a really cool collaborative work path. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. So mixing is for you at Sony is not a solitary job. You've got others in the room working with you. It's probably 75% me sitting in a room and uh, mixing the queue. And then probably the last 25% is bringing in a supervisor on the project or some of the other engineers and mixers here um, will come in and point out. And I think it really, really helps because especially with the size of these sessions, it's hard to pay attention to every little detail and figure out how to optimize every corner of the mix. So it's really cool to have people come in and give you some some tips. Hey man, check out what's what's happening with the percussion. Is it aggressive enough or the string sound a little too verby in this part or those kind of things? Now, Mark Senesak uh, is somebody you work with. Mark Senesak, of course, is a longtime Bay Area audio guy who's been around at least, I think I met Mark in I don't know, I want to say 1988, 89, but he's somebody you work with. Yeah. And Mark is like one of the best people that will come in and, you know, listen to your mix for two minutes and provide the the secret ingredient, you know, hey, why don't you try this thing? And all of a sudden everything's glued together and <laughs> 20% better. Yeah. He's, he's really an amazing audio genius. Yeah. Definitely somebody I got to get on the show at some point. So, you know, looking back on what you've done, what where, where you've been in this journey you've taken, Are there any points in time that, you know, obviously we all want to do certain things over again. What do you think you would do different if you could go back in time and and address some of those, those points in time? Wow. That's a, that's a tough question. You know, I can't think of anything I'd change. I mean, it's all, you know, definitely there was like high points and low points. There has, has been along the way, but you know, I think just committing to keep on doing it, you know, no matter what's going on has been awesome for me because every time one thing shuts down, a new thing opens up or, you know, I've been really fortunate to kind of stumble into the next thing. And for me, each different iteration of 
working in you know music and audio has been better than the last. So you know I can't think of anything I'd really change. I think it took me a long time in the beginning to figure out a balance. You know, I have an awesome wife who's been with me for my whole career. And I know four or five years into it, she was like, hey, are you really going to always be working? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think maybe trying to figure that stuff out a little earlier was it would be the only thing that I really would have kind of changed. But other than that, it's been an awesome ride. What happened to all the gear from Studio Trilogy, if I may ask? Sure, we, we took it all out. At the end there, we owned, we bought the business and all the gear, and we removed all the gear, brought it up to some storage lockers, brought it to my house. Some of it was at Willie's house. And like I mentioned earlier, our initial intention was to set up shop somewhere else. But when we realized that wasn't going to happen, we started selling off a lot of the larger items, consoles and reverb plates and things like that, most of the mic collection. So we we still have maybe, I don't know, a third of the gear left, but just kind of selling it off, really. Yeah, I'm sure that was a relief to, once you realized the direction things were going to take, just getting rid of that excess. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Because I don't think your wife would have loved you to bring that SSL home. Yeah, I still have the SSL, actually. Oh, you do? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Is it still for sale? It's still for sale. We've been talking with a few people that seem to be interested, but we still have it. Regarding the surround sound aspect of things, was that tough for you to get your head around when you first started? Yes and no. You know, at first it was just like, I'd done a little bit of film work at Trilogy. In those scenarios, it's always been the surround was very subtly used and it was just, you know, real light ambience. And my first impression, the first thing I heard down here at Sony I um, was like, wow, you're really using the rear speakers. And so that was actually putting stuff back there and making it move around and really utilizing all the dimension. Took a minute to get to be brave enough to <laughs> put some percussion back there or or whatever it is. I think each project is different. The tolerance of how much they're going to use the surround and how much they're going to keep traditional. So it changes back and forth, but, uh, you know, it's just been really fun. It's like opening up this extra dimension you get to mix in all of a sudden. Do you feel that you are able to stretch out as an engineer there and do your job? Or do you feel like there's kind of others that you're super accountable to that you kind of, you mix by committee? Yeah, it's, it seems like a really good balance. There's definitely each project, there's confines set up, there's fence posts set up that this is where we're staying within on the project, but it doesn't feel confining at all because, you know, we set up the fence posts for one project and then the next project comes in and the fence posts have all moved. So you get to try something completely new and different. You know, for me, it's just, it's awesome to be learning something new and getting to experiment with something different. So it doesn't feel confining. I feel like I'm still just learning every day. What is your advice for those who would like to get into that line of work at Sony and do what you're doing? Oh, gosh, I don't even know. I don't know what the path is. It seems like most of the people that are on the team are very musically talented. There's a lot of Berkeley graduates and people from the Conservatory of, you know, San Francisco Conservatory of Music that kind of have this really cool hybrid skill set where they're very accomplished musicians, you know, can sight read and have perfected an instrument, but are also really good at audio production and know how to run Pro Tools and, you know, many of them also know how to run some of the middleware implementation software, you know, like WISE or one of those programs. It's a wide skill set. You know, I think figuring out how to 
balance all of those different skills, you know, your own musicianship, your production skills, and your technical skills. I think figuring out all of that. And then they do offer internships at Sony, but I have no idea what the path for that is. You wouldn't have been able to get into that position had you not had the path that you had. Yeah, no, I came in straight from music production and, you know, I'm not a big gamer. I don't have the technical skills. So I kind of came in just straight through the, I mean, technical implementation type skills. So I came in just through the music channel as a audio engineer mixer. Well, I'll let you go. I know you're busy. Thank you so much for doing this. This is great to talk to you and, and really great to trace your path. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me. Great to hear how well you're doing and, and carry on, man. Well, I'll talk to you soon, man. Okay. Thanks so much. Justin Lieberman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. I want to thank all those who helped with the show today. That includes Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme music, Chuck Smith for his wonderful voice, and Marie Plo for her excellent editing. And of course, I want to thank you all for joining me this week and every week. Spread the word, tell all your friends, turn them on to your favorite episode, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.